0: Hello and welcome to the July episode of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Gianolfi,
1: And I'm Howard Marlowe.
0: Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today for hosting us. On this month's podcast, we want to talk a little bit about the 17 legislative proposals to reform the National Flood Insurance Program, the Water Resources Development Act 22 cover its current status, and energy and water appropriations. Let's get started. First, I'd like to point out to our listeners uh, that the Biden administration has announced historic coastal and climate resilience funding through NOAA. The funding was provided from the infrastructure bill and supports climate-ready coasts, climate data and services, and fisheries uh, and protected resources through six grant programs. This information can be found on commerce.gov and on our Waterlog LinkedIn page. So moving on to uh, FEMA and 17 legislative proposals. In May, the Department of Homeland Security submitted to Congress 17 legislative proposals to reform FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. Since the NFIP's last multi-year reauthorization expired on September 30, 2017, their program has experienced 21 short-term extensions, including three brief lapses. The frequent short-term extensions are disruptive and cause Existing and potential policyholders to lose confidence in the NFIP as a reliable insurance program available to protect their homes and contents from the risk of flooding. So, in this, there are four principles outlined in the administration's priorities for multi-year NFIP authorization until 2031, which is about a 10-year increase, uh, the 10-year extension. So, the first one is to ensure more Americans are covered by flood insurance by making uh, flood insurance more affordable to low and moderate income policyholders. Number two, building climate resilience by transforming the communication of risk and providing Americans with tools uh, tools to manage their flood risk. Three, reducing risk, losses, and disaster suffering by strengthening local floodplain management minimum standards and addressing extreme repetitive loss properties. And four, instituting a sound and transparent financial framework that allows the NFIP to balance affordability and fiscal soundness. So... Those are the four basic principles, and then there are 17 specific proposals that aim to address each of these things. Now, we found that uh, six of them are of unique interest to those living in a coastal area. So let's discuss a couple of those. First and foremost, the disclosure of risk flood risk information uh, prior to real estate transactions. Howard, what's uh, what's an immediate response to this? You think?
1: Well, I think a lot of people are not going. To, sellers are not going to want that. Uh, buyers well, It's a good idea, and I think we ought to do it. You
0: think some buyers may also not want to hear it?
1: It's possible. (laughs) I definitely think that um, people who want to live on the coast want to live on the coast, and I certainly have met people over the years who say, well, I'm going to get my, whatever my investment that I can out of it. So if it's uh, 20 years before Uh, gets flattened by a hurricane that's a great investment now I don't happen to have that kind of money myself to sort of toss down the drain but it's like you know investing from in some kinds of crypto (laughs) things right now you don't want to do that but yeah I think we have in this country a lack of desire to know what real risk is Uh, except when it starts to face us and by that time, for homeowners, that means the storm has already come.
0: Well, I think uh, I, I'm sure at least some of our listeners saw the houses in North Carolina that were chewed away, eaten by the ocean. I think
1: yeah, in Rodanthe. Was, yeah. Was that
0: in May? I, I, yes, was, not, it was not rel- that long relatively ago. Relatively recently, but um, one of the striking facts was that that house was sold maybe within the last one, two, or three years. I think it's I think it's closer to one or two. Um, and so whether that was disclosed or not, I mean, you're buying a house that's pretty much on stilts sitting at the edge of the ocean, some common sense.
1: You is... would think that common sense would say to somebody, hey, you know, if I want to get something that's only going to last a summer or two, do not I want to go to Airbnb or something like that. And I, I can do that for a lot less money than uh, buying something that's obviously sitting in the High expo- risk,
0: uh, high reward.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe
0: high risk. Lower reward. Low reward, I think.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, of course, it's 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 terrible for anyone to lose their house, but I think it's important uh, that that people are aware of you know what they're getting into. I know even if you try and buy any piece of property that might be on top of a hill or might you might not even think that it's in a flood zone, you still have to get some of those those flood zone certifications.
1: Exactly, and I think it's important that really the risk be communicated, because if more if risk is communicated more effectively than it has been then i think that we'll see some people who will be you know a little more careful in making uh, their purchases we haven't talked though about you know the big whoever the big investors are who are buying up properties on the coast so that they can get whatever their short term return is they're not buying it for long term ret- return and I think that's different from you or me deciding, oh, I want to have a summer home. And we're getting a lot of people who are just doing it for investment.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. So next <clears throat> uh, next on the list of proposals is considering separate classes or tiers to differentiate coastal versus inland risk and adjust rates accordingly. So this one I found interesting the problem here is that when you get into the when you really dig into the details, the problem here is that FEMA wants to make the distinction between the two classes based on the presence of a 3-foot breaking wave. That's a that's a lot of energy. Anyone who's stood in the ocean knows that that's that's a lot. It doesn't even take a 3-foot wave to knock down a house, especially when you've got a lot of, a lot of water moving.
1: I think people don't quite understand that though. You as a surfer and somebody who likes the beach in general, you know, when when you get into waves, in terms of just a human, you know that when you're hit by a wave, it's not three feet; it's something less than that. So I know that three feet doesn't sound like much, but if that wave is coming toward a house, I certainly can believe you that it's going to take that house out.
0: If you're getting hit by a three-foot wave, you're in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a part not, of it. You're a part of it. Yeah. You know, there's there's a difference there between this the you know, it, we, a lot of these communities already have sunny day flooding. The water rises and the water <laughs> falls again. That's different than having waves. So I just wanted to make that distinction clear. Um, uh, for example, you know, the house that was eaten in Rodanthe, <laughs> that had waves literally eating at it, right? But I think, unfortunately, many of the coastal properties in the Mid-Atlantic that currently exist have not experienced a three-foot breaking wave since the storm of 1962 or otherwise Hurricane Sandy. So I think that it's just... I don't know who came up with that, but I just I, I I think that needs to be reviewed a little bit more. I don't think that's going to work. Uh, the next is uh, the next legislative proposal is I think something a lot of people people who are familiar with the NFIP are uh, already know about, and that's the excessive loss properties or XLPs. Uh, and this says that an XLP is defined as a structure with four or more paid losses of a hundred of ten thousand dollars or more. In baseball, it's three strikes you're out. So I, I think this is fair. If you exceed more than four claims, uh, FEMA will deny future coverage. I think that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I do too. It's you know, you get four strikes in this game, and and three should warn you definitely that uh, you ought to be doing something other than just sitting there and doing and saying I'll wait for the next storm.
0: But you have to ask if this is your third or fourth time being flooded. Why are you there? And The real reason might just simply be affordability, right? Whether you 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 can't move to a place that's more expensive, but uh, that's just that's just a fact, right? I mean, there's yeah,
1: there's there's people who certainly homes that have been there for a long time, people, and you have a number of people who have owned homes for a long period of time, and they take a look at what's happening around them. It's like happening what's happening inland. When you have homes that have been around a long time, somebody's going to come along next door to you and is going to knock it down and put up something bigger. It might be put up in a safer manner, but it's probably going to be just as close to the risk as yours. Now you turn and look and say, well, three losses. I don't want to have the fourth one. But even if I have the fourth one, what do I do? Where do I go? I want to have the same experience.
0: FEMA just denies coverage. I mean, that doesn't... It doesn't necessarily do anything for the homeowner. So that's where the next next provision comes in, uh, which is means-tested assistance program, which allows for a graduated adjustment for households who meet HUD's definition, uh, housing and urban development's definition of low and moderate income households. Yeah.
1: I think we have to do something to address affordability in the NFIP program. Uh, It's clear to me that there are people who cannot afford even NFIP premiums. So therefore you, you do something to adjust that um, and make sure, because economic uh, inequality in this country is just increasing. Let's not have it as part of this program. Let's get that out of the NFIP program.
0: And finally, removing barriers to switching to private policies. I guess if you've already got four strikes and you're out and you you decide you want to stay, you might go for a private policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's different than switching. But um, at the end of the day, look, the best public policy is to have as many Americans insured for flooding as possible. And I think many homeowners aren't aware that floods aren't covered in their homeowners policies. That's usually something that's disclosed, but maybe people don't remember. But I think a lot of people are without flood insurance. Um,
1: Amazing number of people. I don't know what the percentage is, but the percentage is extremely large uh, of the people who are eligible for flood insurance, who are in risky areas, and ought to have flood insurance. Because without it, it's like any insurance. Without it, you're lost.
0: Yeah. And if the NFIP isn't working for you, or you can find a better rate through private coverage, there should be no barrier to doing so. Absolutely. Next up on today's podcast is the Water Resources Development Act of 22, uh, 2022. The Senate finally released a committee report on its version, uh, which the House did just over two weeks ago. And we actually have a comparison of the two bills on waterlog.net. So please go check that out. Uh, this is excellent progress on a bill that has typically come much later uh, in years prior. The House and Senate will still need to work out the differences over the next few weeks, or potentially months, uh, given these summer months uh, Typically, not much happens. Yeah, it's possible, but...
1: We're not on the House floor yet and definitely not on the Senate floor yet. I'm hoping that both bills can come up on the floor for debate. They typically pass as close to unanimous as you can get in this Congress. And that is extremely close. So they'll pass with very strong support, bipartisan support, and then work out the differences. And there are differences. Uh, some of which are highlighted in our comparison that you mentioned. A lot of things are just different between the two bills. And hopefully uh, before Election Day, I'm going to just be a Pollyanna for a moment, that some things will happen before Election Day and we'll be able to get this passed.
0: That would be good news. That Excellent That sure would certainly be good news. Um, so finally, moving into appropriations, just going to give a little bit of uh, overview and then let uh, Howard finish up. Um, appropriations are well underway, well underway. The House Appropriations Committee has completed its 12 appropriation bills, and the legislation across all funding accounts includes 1,311 earmarks, totaling $1.4 billion, uh, many of which are in the form of grants for schools, uh, higher education institutes, workforce training, healthcare programs, and other facilities. Um, there is a pretty good amount of uh, earmarks in there as well for energy and water projects, uh, coastal projects. Um, as well as highway and all, and all sorts of other things. So uh, I think compared to last year, there there's a greater number of earmarks. I think that was they were trying to limit it to one percent of total spending and they came nowhere near it. Uh, yeah, so
1: which means they came to less than one percent. yeah. And uh, so the House expanded its what well, they have a limit of uh, 10 per member, 10 requests per member, they expanded it to fifteen. So that's picked up. But also Republicans, who didn't ask for earmarks last year? Uh, some of them are asking for it this year.
0: And I think one of them, I, I, I forget who it is, actually came in first place. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which yeah. is ironic, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's recognizing what you can do for your constituents. Earmarks are just great, particularly for local governments, which is largely what they're going to, and particularly for the smaller to medium size. Local governments that may not do well in competing in the federal grant programs because they don't have the size that is very attractive to the uh, grant makers. So I think it's a great idea. It's working.
0: I do. I do as well.
1: So happy to see that. So, House Appropriations Committee approved the energy and water bill as part of the uh, 12 bills that Dan just mentioned. And I want to just cover some figures. To give you an idea, uh, the committee took the president's request for the Corps of Engineers of $6.6 billion and raised it to $8.89 billion. Now, that seems like a huge increase when, you know, compared to the $8.34 billion that's in place for the current fiscal year. It's relatively modest. Eight point three four dollars currently, eight point eight nine dollars proposed in the House. So for coastal projects, the committee took uh, the record-breaking low of the Biden administration, which was just under $20 million for coastal programs, and pushed that to almost $137 million. That's obviously a big one. What's most impressive is the boost for project construction. The president had a goose egg in that category, that is $0. And the House boosted that to over $87 million. I know the particular numbers are the kind of ones where we all, those of us who worry about paying bills of a hundred or even a thousand or paying the mortgage, whatever it may be, we're in the millions and billions. Remember I talked about the overall core budget being in the billions? Coastal programs, we just said, you know, I talked about 137 million. So put that into perspective, it's small, but nevertheless, the money is very, very welcome. Well, over a third of the 87 million for construction, it's going to a Long Beach Island, New Jersey project. There's also a good amount of money for uh, some of the continuing authorities programs, the CAP programs, uh, particularly the 204 beneficial use slash regional sediment management program and the 111 CAP program. Um, so also there's, there's also money for the beneficial use uh, pilot program, which, uh, There's about 10 communities in the country that are participating in in, and funded programs right now that are part of that uh, demo. So we look for this and other appropriations to come to the House floor in July and the Senate, hopefully, well, we don't know, quite frankly, maybe they'll get to it in September and get their bills on the floor. Right now, there just doesn't seem to be any movement in the Senate. Um. Probably no rush, though, because we really don't expect any final bills to be approved until after Election Day.
0: Well, it's good they're making progress.
1: Yes, fitfully, but the House has been moving along very nicely.
0: House tends to move a little bit faster than the Senate on these things, so... It's- yeah,
1: the last few years, particularly, they're their variety of, you know, you know, in the weeds, reasons for the Senate moving slowly. But the arguments are very often the issue of Republicans wanting much more spent on defense, Democrats much more spent on social programs, and trying to work that out it is a, uh, probably the biggest problem in the Senate.
0: Well, that's all we have for today. Uh, <clears throat> with 4th of July weekend, you know, summer is in full swing. Get down to the beach, lake, river, whatever it is, and hope you enjoy your summer. We'll be back with you in August and look forward to talking with you then.
1: Take care now.